a handle around it. Okay, so your question is uh, how how does it work? How does migration of millions of people work? Um, when they're being chased. When they're being chased, when being pursued. So the first thing is that um, they actually had a head start. Um, the they only began pursuing after a couple of days. Uh, but I think there's a much more fundamental question: is that uh, imagine we decided to get all the Jews out of Houston tonight, right? Jews live all over Houston. How do you get to work out? There's sixty thousand. Sixty thousand is significantly less than six hundred thousand. Let's let's imagine that we decide we're going to Utah, right? <laughs> we're on a pilgrimage to all the Jews, and all the Jews know about it. Let's say we're able to communicate with them all. Right? Assuming we're able to communicate with with them all, how do how are we going to do that, right? So. Um, we, we view this as being somewhat on the uh, border between a miracle and heavy preparation. The Jews knew for a year already that they're going to be leaving. And uh, like the Torah tells us that the Jews were instructed to be ready to go before the night of the Exodus. Ready, packed suitcases. So everyone knew that they were going. Everyone was packed and ready to go. Uh, yet we're told that the, the the migration and the travels was done in miraculous fashions. We had, like last week's Parsha, we had this cloud that cleared the path. We had a fire at night, some pillar of fire. They weren't traveling the kind of way we were traveling. We would think that we were traveling. You know, they had, there was a miraculous element to it as well. So, on one hand, it's good, it's good preparation. On the other hand, it was, it was, it was, uh, uh, it was somewhat of a, uh, of a, of, a, of a miraculous uh, experience. Like we're told, for example, that they were able to traverse great, uh, great amounts of land very quickly. And that's known as Tvitzat HaDerech, which means uh, going, like traveling very quickly. And it's a, it's a miracle that happened several times in the Torah. Uh, how does that actually work? Interesting, because we'll actually reference something that we mentioned quite briefly in last series. Uh, when we talk about, it's on the sheet here, when we talk about God, we, we, what we mean, what we mean is some, is the entity that created, but also creates and recreates. What that means is that we kind of think that we're on an autopilot. Okay, God, God created me, God created the universe, and that's going to be around until He stops it, right? Right. So I'm alive until something causes me to die. If, let's say, nothing causes me to die, well, then I'll just live and live and live, you know, in perpetuity. Right? That's the way we view it. In Jewish philosophy, we say, no, every second that you're alive, it's because God is infusing you with life. I'm trying to feel, feel comfortable to come close. Right? So this is, that's, a, that's a whole different thing. It means God's constantly recreating, renewing. We say that every day God is a renewing, recreating, uh, the the individuals on the planet, but the the whole creation, everything that was created at the beginning, is being infused with life, with nourishment, with sustainment. So, if every second God is recreating me, He happens to just recreate me right over here. That's the way nature works. Like God, nature is God's most common desire, most most common will is is, is nature, and then nature is that if I'm sitting in this chair. And now a second later, God just recreated me, decided, you know what, Wolby's going to live for, let's give him another second to live. And then, oh, another second, God's constantly infusing me with life. And he happens to just recreate me at the same spot that I was. When we talk about Kvitzat which is someone 
traveling to someplace very fast, it mean, all it means is that God, when the seconds, the, the, every second when God's recreating me, well, he's recreating me in a different place. So hence, I traversed a very long amount of uh, a, dist- a great distance, but it happens instantaneously. It doesn't mean that anything on the way was just knocked down. Like uh, uh, It's like kind of like, um, I don't know who here has read Harry Potter, but apparition. Remember Harry Potter? Apparition means where you just decide you want to be somewhere else, and you're just somewhere else. I'm dating Blaine Stairs. Well, I mean, they, they were traveling for 40 years. It is not too big of a space. It is like they were traveling that fast. Well, well, yeah, that's true. And like I said, it was it was on the border of being just nature to preparation. He was asking specifically about at the beginning, at the beginning of the journey, the first two weeks of the journey, and uh, and yeah, and, and and we know that the entire forty years of the Jews being in the wilderness was. like weaning them off living on a supernatural plateau. The point is is that you're in Egypt, you're being rescued from Egypt in a miraculous fashion. You're being ushered out in, you know, highly unexplained, uh, unanticipated uh, manner. Miracles. Splitting of the sea, getting the Torah, ten plagues, all those things are miracles. You're just living like in, in a different, you're not living in a natural setting, that's the way it happens. Food, it just comes down, manna from the sky. You just, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's a supernatural kind of existence. They're going to go to Israel 40 years later, and they're going to have to maintain the same level of faith, the same level of dedication and commitment, but in a natural setting. So these 40 years are like the, so we're slowly weaning them off their, um, their, um, addiction or dependency on supernatural, a supernatural insight to maintain their faith. So you see, like, and and, and during this these tumultuous, tenuous forty years, any time there was some little break in supernatural uh, relationship or behavior from God that they got, they start complaining, and that's like a, that's like a way to test something. You want to test how. Uh, so you're going to respond to certain conditions. Right? So you just give yourself a little test and say, okay, let's put myself in those conditions. Am I ready Am I ready for it? And they stop having for a half a second, they stop being treated with this, you know, with the supernatural kid gloves. Boom, they start complaining. They're not ready for it. So these 40 years is an educational process. It's an it's a acclimation process. It's preparing the Jews to live in Israel in a permanent, more of a permanent, more of a permanent fashion, Without the, uh, the the supernatural um, relationship um, that they had with the Almighty uh, at the beginning of this journey leaving Egypt. Well, the to- well the, what you're referencing, uh, Vitali, is that the Torah says is that all the adult men who participated in the golden calf sin, um, they all died before they left. They went into Israel. Um, there's something about uh, the golden calf, what, what they were actually thinking, and what actually happened there, 
but something about those people um, and what they did uh, made it that they cannot, they are sullied beyond repair in a certain sense. So these are not going to be the people who are going to be building the new frontier of, of Jewish life in Israel. Well, or men who were less than 20 years old, less than adults. You know, we, we've used 20 years old as being formalized, a fully mature adult. So, in, you know, in a certain sense, we look at someone who's bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, 12 or 13, as being cutoff point for a certain degree of maturity because that's when they begin their maturity. But they don't complete their maturity until, you know, until 20. So that's why on certain issues they're not actually held liable for their actions till they're 20 years old. So it's about the golden calf. So yes, that's what the Torah says. It says that God made a promise that no, no one who participated in the golden calf uh, would, uh, would no, no adult men, women didn't participate in it. It's not about slavery. It's not, not about slavery. So I would even, I would guess that the, in Egypt they enslaved also the young kids, I would assume. So I'm sure there were some people that were less than 20 at the time of golden calf and actually got into Israel. Are you saying that no females participated in the golden calf? I'm not clear on that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And that's actually been a pattern in, in, in Jewish history, is that whenever the big mistakes that the Jews have committed together as a community, uh, almost always it was the uh, the women didn't participate. We look at women, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but we look at women as being more of the guardians of faith, more as spiritual entities more spiritually attuned than men. So that's why uh, in many of the sins in the Torah, um, the women refrained, abstained from participating. Uh, there was an example of the sin of, of Korach in, uh, in Numbers, the, um, where they tried to rebel against Moses and tried to um, uh, reject his authority. And like the Midrash tells a story about the, uh, some of the uh, compatriots or colleagues of Korach, their wives convinced them out of it. And uh, lots of times in the Torah, we see the women as being more spiritual, less prone to sin. So, yeah. That needs to be really broadcast just a little bit louder. Um, <laughs> what, really? I thought it's slightly, uh, to me, it's axiomatic. It means simple. Like, women it don't have. Lost on me, okay? Huh? It was lost on me. Oh, uh, is that right? Yeah, I did never know this. But, um, the golden calf incident also had women dancing. Who said it had women dancing? Oh, I think it's. It says that there was a there was an a, an era of promiscuity. So it says. Um, oh, is that what happened? Oh. Uh, goes down with all the things, and there was golden calf, and the whole church thriving. Yeah, nineteen fifty six. Cecil B. DeMille. He's the. He's the one who's in charge of educating. I'm saying. <laughs> it's yeah. I had a question about yeah. um, your statement about God infuses us with life, so He also decides how long we're going to be here. Well, absolutely. So, why is it that um, so many of the patriarchs and others in the Torah lived very long lives, hundreds of years, and? Obamacare. <laughs> you know, Medicare. Essentially, no one 
lives, you know, average about 85. And irrespective of how... Do you know what the... uh, Okay, this is a good question. But I would would, would expand your question. Because whenever you ask a question, it's important to understand this is not an isolated incident. Let's expand it a little bit. So let's first... um, Let's start with some statistics. 2013, do you know what the global life expectancy is? Global. 51? 56. No. Buddy? 48. Global. 70. The global life expectancy in 2013 is 70 years. In 1960, in 1963, which is 50 years ago, the global life expectancy was 60. That's 10 years. That means that every five years global life expectancy is rising by uh, by a year, which is remarkable. Uh, I heard a statistic that people, that kids born in America today, uh, when they die, the life expectancy will be over 100. So just because we, in our little slice of history that we are privy to, what we think of something being a constant, steady, static, unchanging, it's actually not true. It's always changing. Uh, that being said, we see other anomalies that would be inconsistent with uh, with the way things are today. Like, for example, we see uh, we see women giving birth in the Torah at the age of eight, and it is true. You could argue that hey, even today, the uh, time that women or girls hit puberty is constantly creeping. Earlier and earlier, like they say that they there's eight year old girls that already hit puberty. Like it used to be, it was 12, 13, 14. So it's like another example of, of things of things changing. Um, but we have in, in Genesis, we have that God is uh, we have Adam living to hundred and up to nine hundred and thirty years old years. Well, that's that that's a significant jump, and uh, we see people living hundreds and hundreds of years, and. The the uh, at the end of uh, at the end of the first section in Genesis, it says is that God made a change and said, "I'm limiting the amount of uh, of life expectancy that someone could possibly have." So the point is, that what I want to demonstrate is that um, the idea of life expectancy and the, the idea of, of 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 people having or people's bodies breaking down or people's bodies developing. Those things weren't always constant over time. And uh, and also think about it this way. Like, you know, what causes people to die? Their body just starts to break down. It means imagine not people didn't have, imagine people didn't have, uh, imagine people didn't have any illness of any sort. Would they still die? Yes or no? They would still die. Why? Because the body starts to, uh, to uh, you know, to just break down. And uh, in four thousand years ago, who is to say that uh, there was cancer or heart disease or people much more tuned with nature and people were much more healthier? And it's possible that people had less um, that had people had less illness. Maybe the environment was different. Um, maybe. Um, Means there's a whole list of things that could uh, impact people's, uh, you know, people people's life expectancy. So when we see that uh, uh, Jacob lived to 147, that's f- almost 4,000 years ago. A lot of things could have been different. That could have been standard. 
Or maybe it was just a little bit longer than it was. Maybe people lived to 120. That was this year, you know, modern days, 87. And he lived to 103. And it's possible. So so that's the easy way to do it. That's the general idea um, about life expectancy in ancient times. But I would say in a more specific idea that um, someone, I think you mentioned, but someone mentioned is that people have, that does God decide how long people are going to live? We have a very um, interesting statement in the Talmud that talks about um, someone who has, people have literally life expectancy. And the idea is that someone, when they're created, when they're born, there's a certain amount of time that's allotted to them. And their actions can impact whether or not they actually are able to accomplish or to fulfill that what they have allotted to them. Point being is that uh, is that they're, they're someone who could sin and get a slice a couple of years, you lose a couple of years of their life. And we even see, I, we see today, there's it's a remarkable phenomenon if you actually go to Israel where the great uh, uh, Torah scholars live. You have dozens of them, right? That 100, 107, 108, 103, these, are, these numbers are common. Like, um, the the senior uh, Rosh Yeshiva, which is a term for head of a yeshiva, head of a rabbiner, he's 103 years old, like 103, 104 years old, and is as sharp as a tack. And there's another one who, uh, a big halachist in Israel, who's, uh, I think he's 99, and he swims four laps a day. He swims about 40 laps a day. He swims every day. And he's just as, as, as fit as you could ever imagine. You know, he was born in like uh, a, the nineteen uh, the nineteen uh, zeros. I don't know what that is, <laughs> and it's just remarkable, remarkable. We had a there was a, there was one one guy. He was more of a like a Kabbalist who lived in Israel. He smoked three packs a day of unfiltered cigarettes. Three packs a day. Okay, his name is Rav Kaduri. You grew him Kaduri, K A D U R I. And like he could tell, like his like his mustache was like you know that the people who smoke have like the yellow mustache. He lived to 108 years old, and when he died, there were two million people by his funeral. Think of two million people in Israel, the country that only has seven or eight million people. Enormous, enormous funeral because he was just renowned as a Torah scholar, and his impact was that great. And he lived to 108, smoking three three packs a day of unfiltered cigarettes. <laughs> So the point is, this this is more of a spiritual angle to your question, that we say that people have a certain amount of, their body is is built to exist, right? Uh, if, you, you know, just provided that there's no illness, but it's going to break down after so many years. And their actions on a spiritual level limits the amount of time that their body could actually have vitality for. And the, the, the grain of the person like you brought up the forefathers, those people were on such a high spiritual level, the body did not decay, did not have that, have that, uh, that, 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 that spiritual watering down um, that would impact, negatively impact their body. And they were able to live what, you know, and maybe today, even today, who, who's, who, who made this up that we, could, we have to break down by the time we're 100? There's no way to be, uh, to be 100 and not be fit. Who, who made that up? Why, why is that so? Why are we so sure that that's actually so? And I think it's remarkable. There's a society, literally a society, of great Torah scholars in Israel, and they convene every once in a while. They're like the 
the Supreme Court, so to speak, of Israel, and they just, they don't die. And they just live and live and live and live. All of them, over 100. It's outrageous, almost. And to me, I look at that as just being, it, it just being some, something that's worthy of just, you know, we had a year ago, um, one of the, um, Rabbi El Yashiv, his name was, he was 103 when he died. And also, like, sharp, like, he stole work up at 5 in the morning, gave, like, 30 classes a day, was, like, in this tiny little house in the middle of Jerusalem, like, answered, like, all the major questions facing, uh, you know, Jewish law across the globe, you know, but still probably never used the telephone. But, <laughs> uh, and then he died. And he died, and then the newspaper read that, that the mantle of Jewish leadership has been transmitted to the next generation, headed by Rabbi Steinman, comma, 99. <laughs> like, like, he's the younger generation. And that, that's, that means the point is, is that there's, there's people that are renowned for their character, for their scholarship, for their dedication to Jewish continuity, and they seem to buck the trend of everyone just stopping to be, you know, at 70, 80, that's it, you're done. You're in a wheelchair. You're in a you're in a nursing home. You 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 have a walker, and your your brain just starts to uh, uh, you know you start you start to lose it. You start to lose it. But, you know this country's sorry. I was going to say this country's obsessed with health, yeah, and the right foods to eat, exercise, and all this stuff, so we can control the aging process and our health. And it just sounds like in the end, the Torah gives the exact full and its folk study. Now the Torah also says you have to be you have to be in charge. You have to, you have, there's a myth for the Torah to make sure that you have to maintain your health. You have to, and there are people that die young because because they don't treat them, they don't take care of themselves. And the, and this is this is another aspect of it where we are partners with God. We mentioned this uh, earlier. We have a say, and our actions impact our lives and the lives of people around us. You said gave the example, the guy. Smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. Well, that could be an exception. <laughs> yeah, but it's literally smoke three, three packs on and somehow he was able to just overcome that. Um, doesn't mean that, and you know, it is possible that someone who could have lived for much longer, uh, but because he was just not taking care of himself and not taking care of him or herself, and then they died prematurely. So, how would one account for? Stalin or Mao Zedong living such a long life. <sighs> Sometimes you get born with genetics also. You know, and I think because in, in Judaism, a lot of times so many people, they're marrying within certain circles, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing this one, it was um, a community in Russia, they were somewhere high in the mountains, took baths in an ice-cold stream every day and took a shot of vodka these people were commonly living to be over 100. Mm -hmm. So they were looking at why these people, and I think a lot of it had to do with the way they lived, the isolation, but also they grew their own food, they processed everything. And like you said, it's also genetics as well. And genetic, because they were all small community Mm -hmm. and kept the gene pool relatively small. So I mean, that may be another... Mm-hmm. And and before I, before I address your your question, I want to also say another point, which I just I just uh, thought of again. There's another story in the Talmud um, about um, you remember the book of the book of Samuel, Mitafel by the name of Eli, 
and uh, his children, and they were cursed with having short lives. And the Talmud tells us that years later, there were two descendants of this fellow Eli, and uh, they both merited to live, um, to, so to speak, hold that punishment in check, and they were able to live. One of them lived till 40, one of them lived till 60. The one who lived till 40 is because he engaged in Torah. And the Torah lengthened his life. Lengthened his life. The other one engaged in Torah and in kindness, so that lengthened his life till 60. Point being is that we said that good character is able to preserve the allotted amount of time that someone was given. It's possible that not only does it preserve, it also lengthens. It's possible that if my 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 positive action not only does it not that does it prevent me from losing that which I was naturally given right or allotment that I was uh, you know assigned to at the end of my life, but also able to lengthen it. Um, now your question as to Stalin and, and Hitler and uh, all the terrible people that are given you know free reign and long life. First of all. Um, do we, do we know for sure that these people actually lived out their lives? We don't know. They lived out their lives long enough to... Well, to, to, do, to do what they... So, 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 so that's really the question. How, how come people are able to do bad things? Mm-hmm. And this is, once again, how, why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people is a, also a very important discussion. Maybe we'll have a dedicated class for that. Uh, but this is just... You know, just that's the nature of, of free will is that people are allowed, are entitled, are given license to do bad. And they're allowed to do things which are wrong, which are hurtful, which are harmful, which take their spiritual life and their spiritual level and the world's spiritual life and spiritual level and even physical level. And it just brings it down. Right? That's the very nature of man. We'll get to this today in the core discussion. The very nature of man is that man was entitled, man is, is given a license to do what he wants. And it could be wonderful things like building hospitals and saving humanity, right? Or it could be terrible things like genocide. That that's the nature of man. So when when obviously God has chosen to intervene at certain points. Yeah. And and interject himself and part the seas and create miracles and he can do that and we've seen that in the text where where is he or where has he shown himself you know accepting the free will where has he shown himself to prevent or minimize the evil in the world the evil in the world that's occurred you know 100 years ago 50 years ago Yesterday afternoon, if he is all powerful, when, if at all, does he decide to interact and prevent or minimize that that sort of damage? Okay, so it's kind of there's really two questions in your uh, um, in your question. Question number one is about miracles in general. Like, when does God decide to do miracles, and when does God not decide to, decide to not do miracles? And also the question is active versus passive miracles, like preventative versus trying to achieve something. So um, we view miracles as being, some of them being uh, hidden miracles, some of them being um, revealed miracles, like public miracles, public and private miracles. That, what does that mean? 
that means is that do you know that in your in your body there are more pipes in the form of arteries and veins than there are miles of streets in the universe in the world there is remarkable like in every one of our bodies there's enough pipes just you string it out more than all the streets in the entire the entire world the United States and Houston and Canada and China and everywhere Europe everywhere and there's no, almost never a blockage and if there was a single blockage well that's a blood clot then you would suffer tremendously we view that as a as a miracle think about it Think about trying to develop a system that there's never any traffic in any city across the globe. Could you try to do that? Would that be a miracle? It happens every day to billions of people. The point is, is that it's a miracle, but we take it for granted. Take it for granted. There, the, the, the list, we could say a list. Like, your liver is not a miracle. Of course your liver is a miracle. Like, you know, the scientists have isolated 500 distinct uses for your, your drinking a coffee right now. If you, didn't have a, if you didn't have a liver, you'd be dead after one sip of coffee because it can't contain enough toxins to kill you. But your liver is a miracle. And it just makes you able to, to, to just filter. It's the greatest filtration system known to man. Or we, nothing that we could ever even try to do gets anywhere close to the amount of filtration that's able to do, that your liver is able to do. And these are things that we just we take for granted. You know, and the, the, the nervous system, and your body is just miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. But these are, we call them, quote unquote, hidden miracles because they're obscured by the idea of nature. It happens to everyone, right? Any parent would know. That uh, the idea of procreation is a miracle. The idea you could just make a child and a tiny little cell and somehow that just turns into a child, it's, out, it's outrageous. That's a miracle. You eat an apple and it's beautiful, appealing, gorgeous on the outside and it, you taste delicious and it's a perfect blend of, of solid and liquid and then you finish it and you get a coupon for another one, you throw it into the ground and Stuff, trees growing out of the ground, those things are miracles. The ground's able to suck up nutrients to, to, make, to, to make fruits. Try to, try to eat, 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 eat uh, dirt. Right? Go, go outside and try to eat it. You can't. Right? But God made a miracle that you take a little leftover from your apple, you chuck it outside, and before you know it, you have a tree with more fruits that you can eat. That's a miracle. But that's a hidden miracle. And those things are obscured by the idea of, of nature. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It happens all the time. It's not out of the out of the ordinary. Imagine if you never saw something like that. Imagine if you try to imagine li- living life without that. Try living without liquid water, or try to imagine uh, human habitation. If the sun wasn't exactly ninety three million miles away from us, it was a few hundred miles closer or a few hundred miles further away. Well, we'd either be toast. Or we'd be icicles, and without the wind, the wind pattern to to be able to to uh, to take the clouds and take precipitation and move it to Colorado, right? We'd all be toast. So you could only live in the coastlines. There's so many things in that are just miracles right in front of our faces, but those are hard to see because we're used to them. Because we are wearing the sunglasses that just make oh well, this is just life. This is earth. This is nature. This is just right. God is everywhere, but it's hard to see it. 
Those are hidden miracles. And part of our responsibility is to make sure that we don't just take things for granted and we start appreciating everything that God does for us. And we could spend literally 16 classes talking about all the different things that God does for us in our bodies, in nature, in the atmosphere, in in society, with our intelligence, with our fingers that bend, right? Imagine if your fingers were like this. Try driving a car with your fingers like that. Try moving, shifting, right? We're, we're, we were created with such design, such perfection, such wisdom, such insight, such perfect miracle after miracle after miracle. That's a hidden miracle. And our job is still to try to, you know, squeeze inspiration out of hidden miracles as well. Every once in a while, we have a revealed miracle. A miracle where God changes the course of nature. God splits the sea. God sends manna from heaven. God turns the blood, turns the water into blood. For God, it's as easy to do that, to have water be blood or water be water. It's the same thing. It's no different. To, to have gravity work or to have gravity suspended, it's the same thing. But to us, because we're used to nature, to us, it's a shock. And to us, that's when we finally have a recognition of, of, of oh, it must be that nature is not just set in stone. It must be that God actually controls nature. And that takes maybe all the hidden miracles... And makes that those things uh, uh, more insightful, more inspirational to us, because suddenly we see a suspension of nature. Oh, it must be that God's in control. So, your question uh, was, well, how come we don't have that more often, or how come God doesn't get involved in preventative methods? And that only happens in very, in, you know, in in select times for select reasons. Um, like it happened many times, Jews leaving Egypt. Why did it happen then? Because it was important for Jews to know with absolute clarity, right? God controls the world. God controls nature. God is the only one who's in charge. Hence, at the formation of the nation, it's very important for this principle to be ironclad. That's why throughout the course of Egypt and the plagues and leaving and the, the, the revelation at Sinai where every single individual experienced prophecy at the greatest level, it was important to have that to, to, to start the nation. We had that. We have documentation of that. That is a historical fact with this, which is incontrovertible. And that alone is enough to suffice for us today to have complete faith by us referencing back to, the, to those miracles. There's no way. Someone mentioned there was at least 2 million people. There's no way to falsify that claim. Think about it. Imagine that thing didn't happen the way it was described in the Torah. Imagine it didn't happen. How would you sell it to a nation that it happened? There's no way to do it. All other religions, every religion starts the same way. Take off the shirt, the jacket. All religions start the same way. Every single religion starts the same way. It's a prophet, he claims to have a revelation, to have a prophecy, communicate with God. And then he says, oh, you have instructions, and he convinces the followers. That's how Islam started. 
Muhammad right, says he has a says he had a prophecy, he had a revelation. He writes down the instructions in the Quran and he convinces the followers. And then they go on a killing spree throughout Arabia. Right? That's what happened. Uh, Christianity, same thing. Uh, Mormonism, same thing. Right? Joseph Smith, he claims to have this revelation. He he gets the golden tablets they're written in the, in the, in the Reformed Egyptian. Right? No one's seen the tablets, but he claims that he right. No one's heard of a Reformed Egyptian, but he right. And he convinces people to follow him, and he gets his followers, and they go to Utah, and they and uh, right. Though that's how Mormonism starts. Every religion starts the same way. Our religion also started the same way. There's a revelation, prophecy, instruction. There's only one difference between the way our religion was started and the way other religions were started. Our religion, the prophecy, the revelation, the initial insight that started the, the start of the religion was in a public forum. It wasn't one man. It wasn't just Muhammad or Joseph Smith or, or Paul on the way to Damascus. It was millions of people. Now, Well, we were Jews no, we weren't Jews. We were Hebrews. We were a family. We were a tribe. We were destined to be a nation. We weren't a nation. We so lo- the formation we- of the nation was the Exodus, but beginning with the plagues and culminating with the revelation at Sinai. So what did we believe at the time? What did we believe at the before, time? Before, before well, we know that the Jews were, on a certain degree, almost indistinguishable in practice from the Egyptians. Idolaters, pagans, like all the people were at those times. So that's when monotheism was introduced. Well, no, we had Abraham was already a few hundred years before that. Abraham, it was his family. He had uh, spawned this idea, this 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 uh, monotheism, and it was perpetuated by his kids. But then they went to Egypt. They were influenced a lot by the Egyptians, and to a certain, in a certain sense, when they left Egypt. They were almost indistinguishable in practice from the Egyptians, and yes, and then they were sort of, so to speak, redeemed in miraculous fashion at Sinai. Every single person, it was we say there's six hundred and three thousand five hundred adult males between the age of twenty and sixty. We can safely surmise there's an equal amount of females, lots of kids. There's a a million and a half, two million people. Some people will say three million. I say let's be conservative. A million and a half people. Yeah, a million and a half people. All of them experienced prophecy. That's the claim. And, and our claim could be viewed or should be viewed the same way that Muhammad's claim and Joseph Smith's claim and Paul's claim and every other religion's claim. There's only one difference. Ours is impossible to falsify. Theirs is very easy to falsify. Right? If I wake up, if I come here next week and I say, uh, I had, a, I had a, um, a dream, I had a prophecy, and God told me that... Uh, you're the chosen one, and you're the one who's going to bring salvation, and you're going to the one, and and these are the instructions, right? Everyone should wear Nike shoes, and everyone should, uh, <laughs> everyone uh, should uh, should we? Yeah, I give a bunch of lists. We write a book, and then we start a new religion, right? You know, if you if if that, that's how countless religions starts. What's the first question you should ask me if you're? What's the first question that should be asked to me to make sure to verify that I'm not lying? Can anyone else yeah, validate that? How do we know? How do we know you're not lying? Right? You're claiming that we have no we have no direct evidence. Right? 
it's all it's my my word and you guys are either have to accept it or deny it and that's what islam is and islam it's possible that muhammad's right maybe yes maybe no well it's his word and no one else could could, could corroborate that in judaism we're the only religion that started with a national revelation because if we're the real religion, then it has to be that it's distinct, it's different, it's incontrovertible. There's no way, there's no way to falsify it. It's not possible. Imagine it didn't happen. Let's imagine it didn't happen. We know the Jews have believed for thousands of years that it happened. We know that 2,200 years ago, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Torah, was already in Gentiles' hands. And at that point, the Jews were ready for hundreds of years following tenaciously the book of the Torah. And they were a distinct community. We know that. So there's obviously been millions of people for thousands of years that have believed this, this story, this narrative, this, the Torah. How did that begin? If it began in any other way than the way it was described in the Torah, there's no way that anyone would have, would have accepted it. Imagine I told you guys that you guys, imagine I came in next Sunday and I said, you know what, you guys, you all had the prophecy. It wasn't just me, it was all of us together. We all had now, it was, it was a group prophecy. What would you guys say? Well, I didn't have it. I'm out, right? This guy's obviously a charlatan. This is a fraud. I'm out. There's no way you would dedicate your life to me and my new religion. Now, the Jews were told, you all saw at Sinai. And they all agreed and they all adopted and they all taught it to their kids and it's the nation and it's been uninterrupted from now, from, you know, there's been an uninterrupted link of, of Jewish of Jewish of Jewish life, of Jewish practice, of Jewish teaching, of father to son transmission of Jewish uh, of Jewish values, ideals, Torah. How did it start if it wasn't true? My religion, right? I'm just a devil's advocate. Yes. Heavily based on solar eclipses. Everybody could observe solar eclipse. There's no doubt about it. Done because of God, whatever I cannot pronounce it, <laughs> the name of God. It's too many syllables there. Surely everybody sees it, everybody believes. And you gather around the pyramid in Yucatan and see, observe the eclipse as predicted by the, uh, by the priest who would be a prophet in our terms. Right? Uh, so that's one of the. Ancient astrology, or we, we think we t- we typically think of the of the ancients as being less sophisticated than we than we are, and maybe to a certain degree that's actually true. But we have in the Torah, in books written thousands of years ago, we have to the second the <clears> length <throat> of a of a lunar month, to the second, literally to the second, something that science only recently had actually come with the very sophisticated models. Uh, come to actually to uh, to to realization of the of the veracity of that claim. To, can you imagine to the second, twenty nine days, twelve hours, forty four minutes, three seconds. We have that. The point is, the ancient ancient astrology was uh, was indeed was indeed very sophisticated, and it's possible that some guy knew when the solar eclipse was. How is that at all a proof? Plus, that's not that's not prophecy. 
to predict the solar to predict the solar eclipse is not prophecy. To predict to predict uh, to, to have rev, to have prophecy. Prophecy is a a, 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 a temporary um, suspension of of physical of physical um, tools and adopting spiritual tools to have. A um, experiential relationship of God; those things are not. No one has done that. And you know what the Torah even says? This is this is astounding. The Torah says like this: Not only, not only, are you the only nation that has had this kind of uh, prophecy and prophetic experience. You're the only nation that has even made a claim to it. I mean, the Torah is making a prediction. That not only are the Jews all ones to have it, no one else will even claim to have it. And it's it's pretty astounding with the forty six some odd thousand religions out there and cults and different groups of of belief in some sort of deity and some sort of tenets of practice. And we're the only ones that even have such a claim. Why do we the only ones that have such a claim? Because that's the, we're the only ones that actually had this. And if you haven't had this, you can't claim it. Because the second you claim that someone else had something they didn't have, they let you're laughed away. There's no way to hold a conspiracy with three people, much less a million, and plus then, and then follow a group, a set of laws that's very restrictive. Exactly. Who would want to do that if you knew you were all in an own conspiracy and it was all made up? Yeah, and just just try to let's let's try to you know rewind the clock to the beginning of the of the. Uh, of the religion, right? Moses, the charlatan, let's assume, let's play devil's advocate, he convinces the people that they saw, they experienced prophecy. And now he says, which is, it's not true. They haven't seen it. Once again, playing devil's advocate here. And he tells them, you know what? If you don't, if you light a fire on Shabbat, we're to put you down. Which is what he says. Would anyone in their right mind be willing to actually do something like that and dispense judgment like that based on this charlatan who they clearly know is lying? Of course not. Even if he was as charismatic, the most charismatic person in the world. You can't convince me of something that I saw if I hadn't seen it. And especially if compounded with that, if, if you're going to make me do very restrictive things, if you're going to make my land lie fallow for the seventh year, right? Torah says, on the seventh year, land lies fallow. And everyone takes a year off. But how are you going to feed yourself? Right? Hunter-gatherer, how are you going to feed yourself without tending to your land? Well, God will give you a bumper crop in the sixth year. Unless you're absolutely sure that this guy is not a charlatan, that this guy's telling you the truth, you wouldn't go with that. You wouldn't say, I'm closing my business, close it. God will provide the 60-year double. No one would do that. There's no questions that any founder of religion has this greatest charisma, magnetic personality. Well, Moses did, he, Moses did it. Yeah. Moses had a lisp. And if he... Moses had a lisp. If he he's successful, you would become Moses, you would become Buddha, you would become uh, Muhammad. If you're not successful, you'll be called a cult and you will become Jim Johnson's and Davis Correction from this world, right? But what I'm saying, I think for most religions, what is uh, sufficient, necessary, and sufficient at the same time, as a mathematician, 
mathematician say is to have founder who would just be taught utterly convinced and is able to convince. In other words, I don't think, well, it's a great idea that, yes, we have this a million and a half people who would observe and see this prophecy at the same time. It's not really necessary to for it to, to start a religion. Yes, but that's the religion that we have. And that point alone, that claim alone, is enough to assure us of the validity. And that's why, that's why, getting back to the original question, the two kinds of miracles, those kind of miracles only happen every once in a while. Do we think Because those, those kind of miracles are... It, let's, let's imagine. Let, let, let's start, let's, I mentioned this a little earlier. Let's stop for a second. Your question is, why, why does God then have more obvious miracles every once in a while? God should, God should assert, assert himself. And you know what? Maybe, let's imagine a world where every time someone committed a transgression against the Torah or against God's will... Boom, they got a zap, right? as if they stuck the finger into the outlet. Right? Or anytime someone got a, uh, someone did a mitzvah, they just automatically just felt this like injection of, uh, you know, illicit narcotics, just a high, right? Well, then they would take, uh, and there's no point of it. Remember, uh, the only reason why there's any value to doing mitzvahs is because. It's dependent, contingent on faith, and therefore the second, it, it, it the second there's it, there's no room for rejection of it. The second there's no slightest bit of doubt, right? What if, if right away after you did a transgression, got a slap in the face? Well, no one would transgress, and then therefore there's no value of of of, uh, of maintaining the Torah, of doing what's right, because you, no one wants to get hit. So therefore, God wants our good deeds to have value. And our goodness can only have value if the existence of God in a real sense was somewhat up in the air. So, that, so, so it has to be that it's, it's, it's intellectually sound, but still, there is still room to doubt. And there's always going to be room to doubt. So it supports the position, does it not? If there hasn't been any revealed miracles since the Torah, and we accept well, there there have, but uh, but but uh, on a national level, um, no. But there have been. We have documentation of. So doesn't that? We have we have stories of people being able to uh, uh, resuscitate dead people, like near death experiences. The guy died yesterday, and uh, you know the guy was able to pray and be able to right. Uh, Elisha uh, Elijah was able to do. Well, Elijah's a good example. He was able to do miracles in a public fashion. Yes, there are there are some, but uh, but but not but but not. Uh... So, I, I take your point about if if you got a shock every time you transgressed, nothing would arguably have much of a meaning, right? Mm-hmm. But doesn't that kind of wouldn't that support the position that the universe is God's creation and man and its intellect is certainly a miracle, and that God spun us out. And then after that, it's just hands off with respect to free will. We have to use our intellect, which is a miracle, to prevent bad things from happening. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. Uh, our intellect was not successful enough. That if our intellect is a miracle, our intellect was not successful in preventing some of the greatest tyrants of history. But some people's intellect was responsible in preventing 
other evil from happening, but that God's presence on a day-to-day basis, we don't, we don't really see it. It's all, it's all well, us. Remember, that, that's what we said earlier. Those are examples of hidden miracles. Uh, right. It's, our, it's our, there. Our intellect, our reasoning, using that, which, was, which is a miracle which was given us to God, but by God. But that he does not, he does not do anything to intervene any longer. Unless on very select occasions, which you're right, I would agree to. to, to okay. Means, the, but the, it's a very fine line here by saying God doesn't intervene or God's wet for coffee. Means, if you say that God doesn't care anymore, right? Or not does he? God's not involved at all. Well, then you're saying that God created but left, and that's. Jewish faith would necessitate that we believe that God is still involved. That being said, it might be a very, 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 very much uh, uh, a point which is which is very important to get it clear um, because it's a little bit of a fine distinction. We're allowed to say that God gives man, like I said, license to do whatever he wants, and we'll hopefully what I had planned to talk about was was very much about this point, uh, but. God enables man to do as he wishes. God enables man to do genocide. God enables man to do good. God enables man to do murder, rape, pillage. Right? We have a license. That, that's, the, that, that's the definition of, 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 uh, of man, is that he's allowed to do um, free, free choice. And that's the purpose of the world, is that man is, like you said, spun out to do, to, to do, uh, to do as he pleases. And hopefully, using his intellect, we're the only ones that have intellect, are able to make decisions to hopefully come to the proper recognitions. And he's presented in, a, in, a, in an arena where he's going to be presented with free will challenges. And hopefully, he will be able to be, weigh the options and intellectually using his power of intellect and the Torah to guide him to the proper way. But he could choose whatever he wants. So on one hand, it's important to say that, no, God's still involved. We only live uh, you know, in the good grace of God. And he's, like we said at the beginning, he's uh, infusing us with life. And he's evolved with the, with, with the world on an ongoing basis. Yet the idea of free will means that there's some area where men, people, are independent of God. Because we're able to make decisions, even if, those decisions are, even if those decisions are ones that he would not agree with. Because right? that's because otherwise there's no purpose in creation. If man does not have free will, there's no purpose of creation. The whole purpose of creation is that man should be able, with his free will, to choose the right the the, the, the right way to live and the right uh, ideals to have and the right things to do. So this is why it's important to make the distinction. On one hand, God is involved with us. God hasn't gone off and spun us, spun us out and just moved on to other bigger and better things. On the other hand, the definition of free will is that this is some area of our life that we are independent from God and we're able to make decisions and he does not, almost never uh, could, uh, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't almost ever tamper with that. That being said, there are some exceptions. exceptions. Uh, we had Pharaoh, Pharaoh, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
So Maimonides uh, makes a big deal out of this, that this is an example where Pharaoh's ability to choose was suspended. He did not have free choice anymore. For certain purposes, because God wanted to do something very specific, he withdrew Pharaoh's ability to choose one way or the other. He hardened his heart and he gave him no choice. So, yes, for certain instances, when the conditions warrant, when God wants to achieve a certain end, that's part of the, uh, of the grand plan that he has for humanity, for mankind, for the Jewish people, then he's going to ensure that something's happened and that might be a suspension of free will. So how come, you know, there's portions of the Torah where revealed miracles have happened and unquestionably innocents are slaughtered, right? When, when, when God floods the earth for Noah, I mean, everyone dies except for Noah and his family. When God puts the plagues on all of the Egyptians, there's... You know, many of the Egyptians are died. They're not not all of them are responsible for enslaving the Hebrews. So why why did not God, at various points, the Holocaust being the perfect example, decide? You know what? That's enough. I got to put a stop to this. I'm going to strike Hitler down, or I'm going to strike his henchmen down. This has gone on far enough, where you have people that were clearly had blood on their hands and there wasn't a revealed miracle to prevent or, or mitigate that harm. Mm-hmm. Well, with the Egyptians, there was this um, theory out there of collective guilt. That's why every Egyptian family's firstborn was harmed. Yeah, but let's assume there was, that, that, might, that might be correct, but let's assume that there wasn't uh, collective guilt. The Holocaust is a good example. I was going to mention that if you weren't going to mention that yourself. So there's a few things here. Um, First of all, we have the idea of the second there is a the second there is a Talmud tells us that uh, there are certain times where God makes a certain decision or something has to happen like we said, God's grand scheme, grand plan, master plan and the nature of it is that once a certain force is unleashed, um, there are times where that force wouldn't distinguish between the guilty and the innocent. For example, we had, um, back to the Exodus, if you remember, it says that the Jews, they slaughter the, uh, the, uh, the sheep, they take some of the blood and they put it on the doorposts. Remember that part? Right. And the Torah says is that you put it on the doorposts so that way... When the angel comes and smites the Egyptians for his born war, he won't come after you. What do you mean? After us? <laughs> We're the Jews. We're the ones you're trying to save. So the Talmud says that there's a certain idea that once something has changed that necessitates a certain, a, a, a different kind of influence from God into people or into, you know, into the Egyptians, it's possible for some, you know, because this is it, this was a force that was unleashed. It's possible for some innocents to get caught up in it as well. And I think the, the Holocaust is a great example. Obviously, the cause of the Holocaust, whatever that is, right? We mentioned this. I 
uh, we talked about this, right? The Holocaust was God's handiwork. It was for, we don't know for sure why, uh, but we could use the Torah, it's maybe you have a very educated guess why, as, as of what. And many times bad things have happened to the Jewish people, and lots of times there were lots of innocents that were, that, that were caught up in it. And I'll give you the source for this because you asked this question. Uh, look at the Talmud in 55a of Shabbos, Tractate Shabbos. It gives a story between the angel of death, what angel of death means, a separate discussion, but uh, this force that uh, is having a discussion with, uh, with God, God wants to, um, has to do something out of the ordinary and there's going to be a plague and you know, people are going to die. And and the, it says that the angel says, "Okay, well, let's put black dots on uh, black dots and red dots on the foreheads of the people that should be killed and should not be killed. Who are the innocents and who are the people that are, don't deserve to be killed? Who are the people that do deserve to be killed? Black dots and red dots." So um, the question is asked: Wait a minute, what about the um, what about the uh, people that weren't responsible? for the cause of this plague. But they maybe could have prevented it by influencing their neighbors. So what it says is that, uh, okay, so that argument uh, was accepted, and those even the innocents were, had the red dot put, put on their forehead, and they were eliminated as well. Point being is that culpability for culpability for negative situations that cause plagues is also sometimes given to people that have no part in participation in those activities that brought about those plagues. But if you could have done something to prevent something, we view you as being causative for that thing as well. So this this might do a little bit to help us help us expand this pool of people that may have contributed to uh, whatever it was that needed to be changed with that action, that godly action. So this is not obviously very much an uncomfortable thing to hear. I know it's very unsettling, but um, whenever like how could you say that? It's, it sounds insensitive. I know. I'm at the, that's why it's purely for. Philosophical. This is a purely philosophical conversation. You just mentioned two reasons. One is so contributory we, culpability. Well, that's this one. Yeah, that's the second. You also said, unless it's possible to remember when you made this example of angel of death. So when this pure, unadulterated evil is unleashed, then it's next to impossible to stop it, even for God. Well, is it impossible for God to to, to stop it? Of course not. Uh, but he will not be willing to do this. And uh, we have also. But Hitler was unleashed, or Genghis Khan was unleashed in this world. And it's not only Jews who were. I remember, we Sodom. have in in in, uh, in Stone, in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That's another example of uh, a society that uh, was acting in such a perverted manner that. They, they were treated, you know, very harshly. Yet we have Lot being extracted. Remember that story? Lot, uh, 
the brother-in-law of, uh, of Abraham, brother-in-law or cousin, it's not so clear, but uh, he was extracted. And this is an example of when, for whatever reason, it was deemed that he should be granted this specialized supervision and be extracted because he wasn't, uh, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't part and parcel with the, with the, with the activities, with the activities of, the, of his neighbors. Yet, you know, it talks about his sons-in-law, if you remember, we're in Genesis probably 15 or 16. His sons-in-law were also there and he tried to t- get them out also and they said, no, we're staying. They stayed and they went down, they went down with Sodom and Gomorrah. Point is, is that it's possible for someone to be innocent and be worthy of extraction, but if they don't actually take up on that, then they might they might go down as well with the, with the city. So this is so this is we just gave three different examples of 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 how um, either um, either individualized people who should not go down go down uh, anyhow, or how they're actually extracted. So I hope that, uh, but remember, it's a very unsettling thing. The, the idea of God changing the way he's dealing with people and letting Hitler. And you know what? There's books written about how many assassination attempts there were on Hitler. It's outrageous how many assassination attempts there were on him. And so many things had to fall into place for him to actually be successful. And it, it already started with World War One, And the status of the nation, the League of Nations, and the Treaty of Versailles, and... And and the, the the you know he was put in prison and his book and and just this meteoric ascension of this madman and to convince uh, the most sophisticated nation in Europe to go on a path of of genocide it's out how many different things had to fall into place and the Americans had to sit idle because they had the that they had the uh, they weren't part of the League of Nations and they had their, their every year they signed a, an act of, of neutrality. And uh, and uh, and the, the the appeasement, and no one wants to start up with the Germans. It's you know, and and then the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, 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 pact, and and Hitler almost did succeed. He was this close to succeeding. So and what God said is that this has to change. Jewish life in Europe is done. A thousand years of Jews have flourished in Europe. They're at the point now. How are we doing there? They're at the point now that if we don't stop it, Jews will disappear. I'm going to let Hitler do it, but I'm not quite going to let him finish. And there will be wholesale slaughter of Jews, and it's terrible. It's a disaster. But this is God intervening. And it's the most unlikely of things that have happened. And it happened, and it, you know what? People always say that, oh, how, where was God during the Holocaust? He was there. And and he, and he he was there and he was involved, but and it, but it wasn't positive. It wasn't positively involved. There were so many quote unquote reverse miracles that actually enabled this to happen. So we just so we just don't I, we just don't understand. I, I have to reconcile it in a couple of different ways. Either the human intellect that he gave us, right, which is a miracle, was not sufficient for those people that opposed the Holocaust or whatever terrible event was. To, to prevent it or to minimize the losses that ultimately or to or to prevent the causes of it or to prevent the cause of it or that it's in God's plan which we don't understand yet that well, we have Jews had to we, die have, we have very we have a very good guess I mentioned there's a very good guess that we have well, as to why the Holocaust happened but, but, we don't know for sure but we could 
say we could give a very good guess. Remember, this, this, this is the most uncomfortable conversation right. that either, any of us have ever had. I, I know. The Inquisition, <laughs> Russian po- pogroms, the Holocaust. Well, we just, what, we just don't understand. <laughs> 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 it's from Ukraine. We just don't understand. Well, what, what, 1648, 1649, Smell he slaughtered countless towns. We just Hundreds of thousands of Jews he slaughtered. These were God's plans, and we just... Uh, we didn't have the intellect that we were given by him to overcome these or prevent them or mitigate them. And there's just some scheme here that God has that we don't we don't understand at this point. But remember, we have the Torah, and the Torah gives us a very good guess. And what is and what is that? Well, the Torah in in the two times where it has the curses in the Torah uh, at the in the middle of Deuteronomy at the end of uh, at the end of uh, Leviticus, and it it goes on. If you read it, your eyes will pop out. It describes this atrocities that will happen to the Jews if they abandon their responsibility as being the moral guardians of the world, and they abandon Torah, and they abandon God, and they abandon their mission. And it it says it clearly. You read it, and you say that this is the Holocaust, and it describes slaughter, hunger. Famine, disease, to, to every form, and it's happened a, a, again and again. The Holocaust was not new. Well, the Holocaust was the grandest scale, and the Holocaust actually contributed to the migration of Jews of Jewish life from Europe to the United States and Israel. You know, and 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 you read those sessions, and you say this was all foretold. This is the Holocaust. You know, this is the Inquisition. These are the pogroms. These are the expulsions. Well, you can also look at what's happening in Europe now, and anti-Semitism is certainly on the rise. I read an article yesterday that Mein Kampf is one of the best books. Yeah, the e-books. I saw that, yeah. On Amazon. Mm-hmm. I was horrified. I saw that as well. I did. Mein Kampf, Hitler's book. His, um, his little minions have not ceased to exist at all, but they have, however, gained in great popularity. And it is the young people that are tagging onto it. And if someone... Fascinating. It's fascinating. And if someone, if someone thinks that this cannot happen uh, or in America, in America, well, then you probably would Failed not... appreciate... Or you would probably not be convinced that it could have happened in Germany if I told you this 100 years ago. Exactly. Someone told you 100 years ago. In the year I just well near nineteen thirteen, that Germany of all of all places would be the ones who would have systematic genocide of the Jews and try to kill every Jew Jew in Europe. It would have been unheard of in nineteen. No one, no one would have believed you. Uh, but you know, we we say that uh, we say, but like I said, it's a very educated guess to say, hey, the beginning of the downfall of of Jewish vibrancy was in Germany. Because that's when the assimilation started. And that's why we know a quarter of a million Jews in the 19th century converted to Christianity. Abandoned their religion. And there was wholesale abandonment as it was on the, on the, uh, you know, on the, on the heels of, of the Enlightenment. Jews were granted citizenship to every country in Europe. Jews were allowed to integrate into society after being, uh, after being marginalized for hundreds of years. Own property. Oh, own property and, and, and own businesses and go to universities. And a lot of Jews said, we're out. 
we're out. And and it took 90 years for the Gentiles to say, no, 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 you're not out. You're back in. And that's very unpleasant. But like we said, anti-Semitism is a way to ensure that the Jews will remain distinct as a nation. And there's two ways we can remain distinct as a nation. Either if we're allied into the nations and we're the model of what society should be, and then we'll listen to us for, you know, for, for direction. And we're distinct, and we have a Torah, and we have instructions, and we have morals, and we're the, we're the people with the highest moral code, right? We're, we're, we're the most intelligent, we're driven, we're changing the world. That's one way for Jewish, for Jewish, for Jewish, um, for, for, for the right word, um, exceptionalism. Right? We can either be distinct and exceptional because of what we do, or if we decide that we want to be like the Goyim, like the Gentiles, well, it might take 90 years, but the Gentiles will say, no, 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 you're distinct. Let's put you in a gas chamber. And as, hor- as horrifying as it is to hear that, and as sad and, you know, and I personally, like I have my, you know, my grandparents all four of them, and my wife's grand, my wife's grandfather, like he should live well. He's ninety-four years old. He was, he had nine siblings. They were every single one of them was slaughtered. His parents, his cousins, his neighbors, everyone, this whole town. He was in, he was in a different place. He was able to survive. Out of my family, my wife's family, we have the six grandparents who went through Auschwitz. Like this is very real to me, and. Some of these people were very righteous people. But, you know, sometimes the Jews are judged as a nation and as a single nation. And sometimes, you know, people who are innocent, um, people who are quite righteous, people who, you know, uh, stand up for for Jewish causes and Jewish values and Jewish practice, and they they go down because, you know, we we, we succeed as a family and we die as a family. We look at the Jewish people as being a family. And um, we say that uh, if someone else does something wrong, I have a little slice of that as well. Well, usually what you see in another person is also what you see in yourself that sometimes is the most unpleasant. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's very unsettling. And it's it's something that we, we really, emotionally, we, there's no way we could actually relate to it. The only way we can do it is philosophically and intellectually, and we read the Torah. And the Torah, God means business. And God was there in the Holocaust. He was there. Everyone says, where was God? He was there. It's no way it could have happened otherwise. And the question then becomes, what do we do with it? And, and we have to know, as we're promised in the Torah, that the only way we're going to remain distinct, and it's just our choice as to how that's going to play out either because of us or despite of us. Is it Margaret Mead, the, the lady who, um, who quoted the phrase, never, under-mes- never under-mes- underestimate what a small group of people can do to change the world, because indeed it's the only thing that ever has. Mm-hmm. Or something to that effect. We all can change the world. We and do it by showing up. Exactly. 100%. And, and you know what? Uh, statistically, Jews are overrepresented in every... And every uh, every metric of accomplishments, Jews are overrepresented because you know we're the Jewish people and we're we're the chosen people, uh, and we, we're God's people, and therefore we're treated 
you know, much more severe. There's no way that we could we could disappear as a nation. And God promises you're going to remain an eternal nation. And that can mean one of two things. That can mean either you'll be you'll follow the instructions of the Torah, you'll be the light to the nation, you'll you know, you'll be distinct as a result of your actions, or Holocaust will happen. The Torah says it. You read the book, the Torah says it. It's emotionally something which is impossible to uh, to accept, but philosophically, intellectually, it's there. The way I kind of help make the reason of it is, it's almost like sports. And sometimes I think people look to God as the referee to make the call whenever God and the teachings are more like the NBA. They're more the association. Prophets and some people sometimes are maybe like more like the referees, good calls, bad calls, or something like that. But we as humans always want to blame the ref rather than, you know, and we call it the ref would be called God rather than saying, oh, the NBA made a choice, they made a decision, and this is the way they decide. So it affects everybody underneath it. Does that kind of make sense? So if you elevate the call, you know, to saying, you know, why does God do bad, good things and bad things? That's like a ref making good or bad calls. That's not God. That's more like enforcement. Whereas the higher level would be the association. Uh, if that works for you, then great. Um, I, I, I look at it as it being just rules. Right. There's rules, and those rules, and those rules are outlined in the Torah, and those rules aren't always pleasant. So we didn't actually get to anything I had planned to talk about today. <laughs> we'll consider today the, the Q&A plus. <laughs> and then we'll start with the, your set curriculum next week. Yes, yeah, so let's, try, let's try to recap everything we talked about today. Um, we talked about miracles, the individual miracles, uh, the hidden miracles and the revealed miracles, and under what situations does God actually do revealed miracles. Uh, we spoke about the formation of the nation, why it's unique, why Judaism is unique, uh, in that our narrative of the formation of our nation is different than every other nation and the formation of every other nation. Uh, we obviously talked about the Holocaust and God intervening and God giving people the free reign to have free will, to make decisions um, that impact themselves and the surrounding people either positively or negatively. Uh, at the beginning, uh, we talked about, what was the first question that came up? Anybody remember? Oh, oh yes. Logistics. Uh, logistics of, oh, of how, oh, how, uh, how the Jews actually left Egypt, how they were navigating, what was the purpose of these 40 years as being a transition period from the, the supernatural to, the, uh, to living in a natural setting. Um, the idea of, of of person people being recreated, remember that uh, that idea that God's infusing constantly infusing us with life, and hence I could move a great distance if God just a second later recreates me somewhere else. That can happen, and uh, I'm sure there were other things that I don't remember. Did all Jews leave Egypt? Did all Jews leave Egypt? So uh, last week's parsha, the first uh, maybe. The, First set of verses it says that the Jewish people left the Hamushim Alubin Israel Merit Mitzrayim Hamushim. So if you look at Rashi, Rashi brings two um, two translations of the word Hamushim. The word Hamushim can mean they were armed. These were armed. 
And the second translation can mean the Jews. Chamushim is from the Hebrew word Chamesh. What does the word Chamesh mean? It's five. It means that one-fifth of the Jews left. So according to the Midrash, there were actually four-fifths, 80% of the Jews actually died in Egypt. Yeah. Died meaning? I mean died. Huh? Uh, no, died. It says that they died during the during the plague of, of darkness, so that way the Egyptians cannot... Because it was dark and the Egyptians weren't exactly... Uh, able to uh, to monitor what's going around them because we don't want the Egyptians to actually say, "Oh, uh, we killed the," or we were able to humble the Jewish people, so to speak. So yes, yeah, so that's uh, that. That would be what you're referencing. Okay, so I'm looking forward to seeing everyone next week. Um, I guess this was the question and answer series. But if you do have a question, what I'll, tell, I'll, tell, I'll give you guys a workaround. If you actually do have a question, what you do is. You email it to me beforehand. I'll slip it into the curriculum, and Dan will never know. He'll never know. <laughs> he'll never know that that was actually a question and answer. I'll. He'll just think that's just part of what I can't plan talk to talk about. You know, if only one fifth of the Jews actually left Egypt, then that makes There's a lot of people. That makes the mixed multitudes that did leave more significant. Absolutely. Because guiding and organizing and, and trying to get people to work together.